Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing, and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group, and I'm here with James Whelan, macro strategist and investment manager at VFS here in Sydney. How are you, James? Great, mate. Fantastic to be here. How are you going? I am great. Joining us on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, managing director, chief investment officer at Acumen Management in Amsterdam. How are you, Kenneth? Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Very well, and a pleasure as always to be with you guys. Looking forward to this one. Mate, it's going to be an absolute cracker. We are here in Sydney in the offices of Redleaf Securities uh, in the beautiful Bly Street offices uh, recording. It is the 27th of August 2020, currently well and truly past our bedtime. It's about half past eight uh, Sydney time and we are doing this at very, very good reason. Now, a note, obviously, with the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate us and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest is just seeing the dawn's early light. Joining us from Washington, D.C., we have Paul Brandis. Paul is an award-winning member of the White House Press Corps since 2008. He is the founder of Twitter's West Wing Report, which I'm a big fan of, which is how he and I came to know each other. In my view, his knowledge of presidential and specifically White House history is unsurpassed quite timely at this time. He's a columnist for USA Today, Dow Jones, Market Watch, and he's spent enough time in Moscow to warrant a few questions. Ken, you might know a thing about that. Along with that, he's written four books, uh, which are all on the wish list that my wife refuses to acknowledge. But the latest one, uh, just out this week, yesterday, in fact, I believe, or the day before, I have ordered it, and it's called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. It officially came out this week, and it's about to be revealed. My secret fascination uh, with the Kennedys, uh, with Camelot, is, uh, is about to be revealed tonight. Paul Brandis from Washington, thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. How are you? Mate, fantastic. It's, uh, I've, I've, being the, the fund manager that I am, this is just sort of about the, the time of the day when I actually start to wake up. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite a good time for me to, to – time, uh, it's a great time for me to do it. Uh, beautiful Thursday here. Now, uh, let's get straight to it. Um, now, before we get into the book, and congratulations again um, on the book, I've got to get it in hardcover if you can get it in Australia – Please do so. I don't like doing these things on Kindle. I do them on hardcover. But so let's go to the uh, let's get straight to what's hot right now. Um, the Republican uh, National Convention, mate. I'm just going to hand it straight to you. They didn't really have much of a platform except for just be pro Trump. Uh, what do you take out of that? Um, what do you take out of the last few days that's gone on? Well, it's really amazing. There really is no platform. Uh, you know, a platform obviously in uh, years past is when the particular party, the Democrats or the Republicans, they tell the American people, the voters, this is what we stand for and this is what we hope to achieve over the next four years if we're elected. And Trump and the Republicans did that four years ago, but. Uh, the, there's no there's no uh, platform now. It's simply uh, a kind of a one pager saying, "Well, we stand for 
whatever Donald Trump stands for. It's sort of a almost like a like a cult has taken over. They just will automatically uh, fall in line to whatever he says and wants to do. It's really quite extraordinary. Never seen anything like this before. So do you think that it's it, – is, is that just because that's what they do or do you think that it's actually been planned because that's what they think is going to win this – what a few weeks ago might have been almost an impossible election but now seems like maybe like a 50-50 opportunity? Well, you know, I think the, it's kind of uh, silly to make a platform and a list of things because we're talking about a president who he's sort of, uh, you know, like the wind. He changes his mind all the time and he gets on Twitter – and says one thing, and then half an hour later, he'll say something else about the the, the very topic. So it's hard to uh, pin him down and come up with a list of things. I mean, w- what do you want to do over the next four years? I mean, he changes his mind every uh, half an hour on certain issues. So in a way, I think uh, they've decided that uh, it's, it's sort of a waste of time. We'll just go along with whatever he wants. Now, in the... Uh we're going to have to talk about the other guys. They've they've managed to keep Joe Biden pretty well hidden for as long as possible. But eventually, they've got to get him out and let people see him. Do you reckon he's speaking of minds? Do you reckon he's got what it's take uh, got what it takes to to take on Trump? Who's still got a few tricks in the uh, in the bag? Well, both of these presidents, both of these presidents, both of these men <laughs> are uh, quite quite old by historical standards. Trump is already the oldest first-year president by a wide margin, and if Biden wins, then he would be the oldest first-term president by a wide margin. And they've both been taking shots at each other, uh, challenging each other's uh, senility and ability to uh, recall uh, that kind of thing. And they uh, jump on any kind of a verbal gaffe that they make and say, aha, that's evidence that uh, this guy is uh, sort of uh, lost it, and he's not uh, stable enough mentally, agility and mental agile enough to, you know, be president, that kind of thing. So that's sort of where this campaign is. My view is they're both uh, they're both too old. They're both too old, and there are numerous uh, politicians and others waiting in the wings who are in there anywhere from their mid forties to their early sixties who are saying, Hey, what about us? It's uh, it's our turn. And I think we'll be hearing from a lot of them in a 2024. Yeah. And I, uh, Paul, it's uh, Paul Colgan here. And I just wonder, um, how, what you make of the Kamala Harris, uh, factor in all of that. Um, because, you know, um, it was such a big decision for Biden, uh, and she's got such an interesting uh, past, um, such an interesting career, and you know her her candidacy, candidacy was it was an interesting run, um, but she got mown down. Um, uh, how do you think she sort of plays into that whole factor? Do you think this is a question on on voters' minds, uh, you know, the, the swinging voters' minds uh, in terms of does she play a role in sort of bolstering Biden at all? Well, uh, the first rule when picking a vice president is sort of like the Hippocratic Oath for a doctor, I suppose. The first rule is do no harm. Uh, That is the first uh, thing. And I don't think she does Biden uh, any harm. She's obviously uh, quite intelligent. She has a pretty interesting uh, resume. Uh, She's not been in uh, the Senate that long, only about uh, 
three years. There are some concerns about uh, that, but uh, Barack Obama was in the Senate only for a couple of years himself. But of course, Trump uh, wasn't in uh, anything prior to being elected. So, so we'll see. I'm not quite sure her political background is uh, as uh, extensive as people seem to think, uh, but I'm not quite sure it, uh, you know, it really uh, matters anymore. So she doesn't do him any harm, but then the question is, what help does she give him? And since this election, I think, will be decided by uh, women, because first of all, there are more uh, women in the American electorate than men. And on a proportional basis, uh, they tend to vote on a greater level than American than uh, than men do. So both on an absolute and relative basis, uh, women are much more influential than men in the political process. So and that's uh, and that helps explain why Biden said, well, I'm going to pick a woman and he picked a woman of uh, color. She's part uh, Indian, part Jamaican, and that kind of thing. Uh, he picked uh, a woman of color because obviously these uh, social issues that we have going on here, racial issues and uh, violence uh, and that sort of thing. And the thinking is in the Biden camp that uh, she will help uh, with uh, that. She appeals to women. She appeals to suburban women. And it's uh, suburban women particularly who I think will be the deciding factor in the election. So she doesn't uh, she does no harm to Biden. Uh, she helps him in uh, in a couple of ways that I just described. And just, uh, Paul, on, on the topic of, you know, a running mate and the potential, well, prior to announcing Kamala, um, there was talk, obviously, that uh, it could well be Elizabeth Warren. What's your view on the fact that having not chosen Elizabeth Warren, she may now be prime candidate for the role of Treasury Secretary uh, if and when that, that is to happen? Well, I could certainly see that happening, and she would certainly be qualified people. Uh, you may want to remember that uh, prior to going to the Senate, uh, Warren ran during the Obama era, uh, this uh, new thing that sprang from the 2008 uh, financial crisis, the Great Recession, uh, it was called uh, this thing called the uh, Consumer F uh, Financial Protection Bureau, which is basically uh, a government bureauc bureaucracy here that was set up to help uh, protect uh, the little guy from a predatory, uh, predatory uh, lending and uh, that kind of thing and just give them better information to make uh, clear financial decisions and that kind of thing. That is her background. Uh, and on top of that, she's been a Harvard Law Professor, so she's uh, quite intelligent. I could easily see her uh, running a Treasury, absolutely. I think that'd be a very interesting uh, spot for her to be. Sure, sure. And I mean, <clears throat> markets, I suppose, to a degree, were pricing the potential for a vice presidential candidate, and now I think they're sort of leaning on exactly that, the Treasury Secretary role. Um, and and so I suppose, lastly, it's, it's something I've been thinking about it applies not only to the US, but obviously globally, but more so, obviously, we're talking specifically the US. What's your take on the fact that uh, there's chatter that the congressional elections are actually more important, given the current circumstances, than the presidential elections? So the, the, the constituents that, you know, will make up Congress. Um, is that more important at this point? 
well, they're both important. And uh, for listeners uh, uh, far from America who might not know, I mean, obviously, it's a Congress is a split at the moment. Uh, Democrats control the House by a uh, pretty wide margin, and Republicans control the Senate by a small margin. And the feeling is that at this point, I would say, what, we're about uh, 70 days out or, or so till Election Day. I would say that uh, the Democrats are probably going to actually uh, add a few seats in the House. Uh, and there is a real possibility that they could pick up a couple of seats in the Senate, which would give them uh, both chambers of Congress, which would be a really big deal because mm. – if uh, Trump were to be reelected uh, but would not control uh, the Congress, it would be almost impossible for him to get uh, any kind of uh, legislation passed, uh, tax cuts or uh, whatever. Almost anything would be just uh, very, very difficult for him to, uh, to accomplish. Uh, on the other hand, if Biden were to win, then Democrats would be in charge of everything. And I think you'd see some uh, significant uh, changes come January in terms of uh, uh, taxes and uh, spending programs and this and that. Uh, I'll say that with the caveat, though, of course, that we have these uh, record uh, deficits, uh, national debt that's uh, out of control. And no matter who wins and no matter who controls Congress, I think there's going to be uh, obviously pressure to do something about spending. I mean, just there was a huge deficit and the national debt was uh, quite big even before this pandemic uh, spending that we've seen over the last uh, couple of months. And these politicians just uh, just ignore these issues as if they don't really uh, exist, but uh, but they do exist and they've got to do something about it uh, sooner uh, or, or or later. Of course, this uh, Donald Trump, of course, is uh, was known in the private sector as the, the king of debt, and he's uh, you know, never been one to be so concerned about uh, red ink and deficits. But uh, at some point, they've got to start paying attention. Oh, it's always good to have a president who's been bankrupt a few times. The uh, uh, the <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, a, a beautiful bow tying the ribbon of the package of 2020 would be a Trump presidency in a blue-held Congress, uh, just to really add to, the, add to the complete noxious mess that this year has been for us all. Uh, the numbers, just doing the numbers, uh, Morgan Stanley predicts that if it's a blue swing and Biden rolls back Trump's tax breaks, um, I think Morgan Stanley can, help me if I'm wrong, they, uh, they take 9% off the bottom line for S&P 500 uh, in average. So it's, it's, it could be a bit of a hit to the market if there's a blue wave uh, in Congress. Yeah, I mean, the, look, the, there are estimates on, on the potential impacts. But again, you know, we're, we're talking multi-factors here, the, the composition of Congress, who's actually running the show, and really, uh, I suppose, the willingness of Biden to do what apparently everyone perceives he will do. So, yeah, there is room for, for a knockback in, in equity prices. But yeah, let's say I'm, I'm less inclined to be so excited about, you know, the, the cataclysmic potential. Well, um, speaking of potential outcomes, Paul, um, we had, uh, there's a very good research centre uh, here in Sydney, the US Studies Centre, um, and we had one of the directors uh, there um, from, from there on the show, a guy called Dr. Stephen Kirchner, and he was saying that... Uh, 
some of the experts and analysts that they have had through the centre have been raising the idea of a um, you know increasing likelihood of a contested result, um, and um, some fairly um, spooky scenarios about you know what could come out of that. Um, what do you think about this? Um, the prospect of that. Well, it's happened before. I mean, people should not think that this is unusual. There were contested elections in uh, in 1800, 1824, 1876, and then most recently, of course, the uh, Bush-Gore uh, debacle in 2000 that uh, dragged on for, I think, 36 days. The hanging Chads. Until the, until the, that's right, the hanging Florida hanging Chads. And that dragged on for for, uh, uh, 35, 36 days until the Supreme Court put an end to it. So we've been down this road before, but I think what makes things different now is that I mentioned uh, Florida uh, a minute ago, uh, guys. The difference now could be that there could be uh, six or seven Floridas going on all at the same time. There could be a series of state elections that are... Uh, contested, and uh, both sides have uh, lawyered up, so to speak. Uh, it's kind of putting uh, uh, law- legal help uh, in a position already to uh, handle any kind of a scenario that may pop up. I think it very well could be uh, a mess. And uh, I think uh, the other thing that uh, makes it even worse, of course, is that we have a president who uh, has gone out of his way to uh, delegitimize uh, the voting uh, process. That's something that we've never had before. It's uh, beyond extraordinary that we have a president who says mail-in voting is uh, rife with uh, fraud and this kind of thing. And uh, if, uh, if Joe Biden wins, it will only be because the election was rigged. Uh, this kind of talk is, is new and it's extraordinary. And uh, the worry is that uh, aside from you know, degrading the political process and eroding something that uh, is always cherished in any free society, and that is uh, the right uh, for all of us to cast a ballot for the candidate of our choice, uh, we have uh, the highest official in the land who is now uh, trashing all of that. That is new, and that is obviously very disturbing. And so when you put all of this together and kind of uh, put it in a, you know, in a mixing bowl, uh, I think November and maybe even part of December could be could be a quite nasty. And uh, uh, people talk about possible oh, violence in the streets. I, I don't know. Well, I, well this I is what I was just going to ask you about, because we've, we've already got this, um, this, you know, quite a bit of unrest, um, you know, in, in patches around the country. Uh, do you yeah. think that that kind of so, so social unrest, you know, how do you think that feeds into the prospect of, of um, like you say, a, 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 an election where there's questions over the legitimate legitimacy of the, of the results? Well, the uh, this election, in in that sense, since we're talking about social unrest and violence, and uh, you know the the desire for law and order, kind of reminds me of a 1968. That was the year, of course, we had uh, political assassinations and just all kinds of uh, all kinds of uh, urban 
unrest going, not just in the United States, that was going on all over the world, in fact, but uh, here in America, it led to the election of a Richard Nixon, the law and order candidate. And I think what's interesting is that, uh, and we saw this from Trump in 2016, he's clearly taking a page from that playbook and talking about uh, how, look, we must have law and order as a society. It's the uh, it's the the foundation on which everything else is uh, built. Uh, there's a certain truth to that. Of course, you can't have a civil society that's uh, built on unrest. You have to have laws and you have to have people that uh, respect them and those laws have to be enforced and all of that. And uh, I mentioned before suburban voters. That is an issue that plays really well with suburban uh, voters, and that's why you hear Trump talking about, uh, you know, he's playing the race card. He'll say, oh, if Biden is elected, uh, blacks are going to just uh, run out of control. They're coming for your suburbs and your real estate values will never be the same and the suburbs will go away. It's really just scary, incendiary uh, talk and obviously just a gross exaggeration. But uh, some people believe this and uh, he seems to think it will uh, it will help. Everyone, uh, it's the uh, what I call the 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 hover factor when uh, when you go into the polls. The hover the hover being the pencil over the ballot uh, when yep. when you go in to vote. The hover factor means a lot. Now, speaking of the '60s, Paul, we're just going to take a take a trip back. So, a couple of your previous books, Under This Roof, This Day in Military History, on my list. My wife refuses to acknowledge, uh, and then also one of your other ones, This Day. In presidential history, uh, one of uh, a, a sort of an area that I, I'm a big fan of. So this uh, this specific day in history, the 27th of August. Uh, let's go back. I believe it's LBJ's birthday, but also um, LBJ also on this day uh, received the nomination in his own right in '64, following yeah. his his interim time after after Kennedy's assassination. Also, uh, Obama's. Um, Nomination too. Uh, now, now let's just go back and, and 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 talk about some of those beautiful moments and and that time. The quote that LBJ said upon in New Jersey it was Atlantic City in New Jersey when he when he when he received the nomination. Let us join together in giving every American the fullest life, which he can hope for. Um, he'd probably be shot down now for being gender specific with that quote, but uh, but the, but the idea <laughs> being that the idea being that so you've been around the White House long enough um, to to know its importance. You've been around. To, to know what it represents, that the, the role of the president means. Now, historically, I believe that, that the presidency was originally meant to be a, a sort of a figurehead role. It's obviously become much more than that. Um, so do you think that, that that we've placed too much emphasis on the role or, or what does it mean? And, and, and specifically with, with Trump, how far has he steered it? I'm not saying off course, but how, how far has he steered it away from, from, from the direction that it was on and from, and from the role that it actually took? Well, this uh, predates Trump, but uh, the executive branch of the federal government has been growing in power for uh, quite some time at the expense of Congress, uh, which is with the second branch. And then, of course, you have the uh, the uh, the judiciary, which is the third branch. The, the executive branch, the presidency has been growing in power for uh, decades and you can trace it all the way back uh, to, since we're talking about uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, the start of the Vietnam War, 
came the official start, at least in uh, 1964, with something called the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, where Johnson claimed there was an attack on an American ship off the coast of Vietnam, and he needed to respond, and he got Congress to pass this uh, resolution. There was never any official declaration of a war. Uh, President simply uh, Johnson and uh, uh, you know Bush, yeah, well, the first Bush in the Persian Gulf, and then his uh, son in uh, Iraq in 2003, and then uh, President Obama uh, taking on uh, Libya, and President Clinton in uh, in uh, in, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, and on and on and on up to the president. Uh, we keep waging these wars, and yet Congress uh, never declares war. The last time uh, the legislature in this country actually declared war was in 1942, and yet we fought all these wars. So the point that I'm making here is that uh, the presidency has grown enormously uh, powerful with presidents able to uh, go to war on their own and then think about uh, constitutional responsibilities like uh, getting the legislature involved, that's an afterthought. And it's been that way for quite some time. And so what we're seeing with President Obama, with President uh, Trump rather, is is nothing new. It's simply an extension of what we've seen in uh, decades past. So for uh, I'm not a fan of President Trump, but I will say that what he's doing in that regard is nothing new. It's just an extension of what uh, other presidents have done. And that uh, holds true for uh, pardons of controversial uh, officials and use of executive power and so forth. Uh, those things, uh, too, have been uh, exercised with, I think, increasing uh, frequency in uh, in years past. Trump is simply uh, extending uh, his use uh, of them, and he comes under criticism for them simply because he's uh, Donald Trump. But in the instances that I just described, he's not breaking new ground. He's simply doing things that uh, other executives have uh, have done as well. So the presidency really has grown quite uh, quite powerful in recent uh, decades. And, and I mean, ultimately, isn't isn't that sort of one of the greatest ironies of the Republican Party where, you know, as far as I can tell, they've always generally advocated for a smaller role of government or a smaller government and less impact on the day to day. And yet here we are, you know, having, well, I suppose it, it falls to both sides of the uh, of the divide, but seemingly increasingly it's the Republicans that are, you know, meddling a bit more and, and sort of, you know, inflicting their, their powers, as it were. And, and ju- just on that, I suppose... Um, I, w- I wanted to take it one little step further in that. Obviously, the, as you acknowledge, Paul, the, the presidential role as such has has grown in stature and meaning and impact not only uh, domestically for the U.S. Uh, po- you know po- political scene as well as the economy, but obviously uh, geopolitically, all these things have a significant impact, and that impact seems to only be growing. And f- from my perspective, albeit maybe somewhat narrow, from the market side of things, those those geopolitical ramifications and, and the volatility around them have just created a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of havoc as far as uh, markets reacting to to the various bits and pieces. You know, not least of which, obviously, uh, the introduction of I suppose the Sino-U.S. trade war, which has been ongoing now for what feels like eternity, but probably at least two and a half odd years. Um, you know, st- stuff like that. So, 
I suppose I want to get your take on that, and and you know I've got a view, but I'll I'll let you go. Uh, about uh, the, the the trade war with China. Yeah, uh, the 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 trade the trade war with China, and generally, um, basically, what you think you know it, it is doing uh, for markets or, or the impact it's having, you know, on, on economies not only in the U.S. but also globally. Well, I think that uh, the some of the things that uh, President Trump has done uh, have been uh, upsetting in the sense that uh, he is messing with the status quo. Uh, you know, he is upset. Uh, we'll talk about China in just a second, but he uh, has obviously uh, upset uh, ties with uh, Europe with not just a personal attacks on people like uh, Chancellor Merkel and that kind of thing. He's actually talked about uh, withdrawing from uh, NATO, the most important military uh, uh, alliance uh, in the world. Uh, so uh, U.S.-European ties have uh, frayed. There's obviously a trade component uh, to that. All of this is a great uh, pleasure, of course, to uh, Vladimir Putin, who is delighted to see the U.S. kind of stepping back on the world stage and creating kind of a power vacuum for others to fill. Uh, so the, I think uh, Moscow, where I've spent some time, is just uh, delighted with all of this. And in terms of uh, China, uh, this trade war, which uh, continues, you, you know, I think Americans, or at least uh, the Trump base, do not seem to understand uh, how tariffs work. Trump keeps uh, talking about how, oh, we're taking in we're taking in billions of dollars from China. We're really uh, putting it to them. It's like, really? It's not uh, I, I don't think I don't think people I don't think his base uh, or even Trump uh, understands <laughs> that a tariff is simply another word for a tax that is paid by the the importer and it's then passed on to the end user. And we see that, of course, in the price of everything from uh, washing machines or whatever components that come in uh, that are put into uh, you know cars and electronics or on and on and on. Uh, the price of all of these things has gone up to varying uh, degrees, and we are paying for that. Uh, There's a J.P. Morgan study, in fact, that said the average cost to the uh, the typical American household this year from these tariffs has been about uh, about one thousand U.S. dollars. Well, a thousand dollars is uh, it might not be that much to you or me, but to a lot of people, that's a lot of money, uh, an awful lot of money. And uh, particularly now, when you've got uh, so many people who have lost their jobs and uh, evictions are mounting and this and that. $1,000 is a lot of money. And yet that is what uh, Trump's tariffs have done. And uh, I don't think that people seem to understand that. And he keeps saying that, uh, oh, we passed this a huge uh, tax cut and there's more money in your pocket. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's all an illusion. Uh, the tax cuts were obviously skewed towards uh, the very top tier of earners and corporations, and very little of that actually went into the pockets of the regular guys. So there's that, and then uh, the cost of the tariffs, and I would argue that most people have actually been 
uh, hurt by uh, these things in the aggregate. But he comes out, of course, and tells completely the opposite story. And they don't mean to denigrate his base, but they don't seem to understand how all of this uh, works. And he keeps telling these stories day in and day out, and they seem to buy it. It's quite amazing. And one more quick thing about China, by the way. He keeps saying that uh, the Chinese want him to lose and they want to President Biden because he would be so much easier to deal with. I actually have an opposite point of view and tell me what you think. I actually think that uh, the Chinese have been uh, delighted by Trump uh, from the standpoint that he really hasn't done nearly as much damage to them as he would have uh, his voters believe. That's the first thing. And the second thing is uh, the damage that he has done to America's standing on the world stage, the geopolitical role that we've always had, that has been badly weakened and damaged by him. Uh, and I think I think they're delighted with that as well in Beijing. Uh, anything that weakens America, I think, uh, strategically is good for them as they eye places like Taiwan and these disputed islands in the South China Sea. An America that is less willing to engage globally, I think, is good for them. So I actually think that uh, China wouldn't uh, wouldn't mind another four years of Trump for, for those very reasons. So I'm really curious, Paul, uh, because uh, obviously foreign policy is the thing that we take note of and sort of feel uh, – here in Australia and and in Europe, um, but do you think that um, a sort of broader isolationism um, has the potential to be a more permanent feature of American foreign policy, um, given how Trump has approached it and uh, his electoral success with um, retreating from from multilateralism? Um, so, do, like, do you do you think that this is likely to be a permanent feature, or and then conversely, like, do you see the potential for a major reboot of, of multilateral uh, foreign policy in a presidency that can rebuild popular support for such an approach? Now that we've just been through this period, well, there are a couple of moving parts uh, here to that. That's a really good. That's a big question and a really good question. And I point out that uh, prior to World War Two. Uh, America was isolationist. We, you know, we had this uh, protection of two great oceans, and nobody could bother us. And uh, obviously, having oceans on either side of you won't uh, protect you uh, anymore. But uh, historically, that's what we always were. And the fact that uh, we're deeply engaged uh, around the world uh, now. Uh, not just with uh, trade, but with uh, uh, all these organizations and uh, pillars of global order that sprang up in 1945. I mean, everything from the United Nations to, uh, you know, remember the Bretton Woods Agreement and, and everything that uh, sprang from that and uh, just on and on and on, uh, trade agreements and just uh, everything. All of that in the grand scheme of things is only – what, uh, 60, 70, 80 years old or so, and historically has not been a part of what this country has been. That being said, uh, I don't think we could ever go back to sort of the pre-World War II era where America was alone and we weren't really entangled with the rest of the world. Just from a trade standpoint alone, we can't trade as obviously a 
a huge uh, issue. I think the I think the number is something like a one in six American jobs depends on trade. For example, uh, travel and tourism is obviously just. Uh, I think that's the world's biggest employer, isn't it? Travel and tourism. So uh, the, there, there's too much economic, uh, too many, uh, too many uh, chips on the table, so to speak, uh, in terms of these things for us to go back. And yet Trump keeps trying, at least uh, politically, to turn back the clock. Uh, he can try all he wants, but because of these uh, deep economic ties, not just with China, but with the you know, the EU and uh, the, the huge trade with the Canada and Mexico are our biggest uh, trade partners, obviously. It's just, it's just too many economic ties around the world for Trump to just uh, uh, pull back uh, completely. He, he seems to think he can do it, but uh, I don't think he can. And as he pulls back uh, politically, uh, I think it just uh, it, it emboldens, uh, again, people like uh, Xi Jinping and uh, look at what Vladimir Putin has uh, doing. I think they're delighted when America pulls back on the global stage, but I don't think anybody else is. I think they're quite alarmed in Germany, and I think they're quite alarmed in uh, Britain and uh, Japan and certainly in South Korea and, uh, and on and on and on. So there's kind of two parts to it. I mean, politically, Trump wants to pull back. Economically, uh, from a trade standpoint, I think it's practically impossible. How do you put those two things together that seem to be at odds with each other? I'm not quite sure. Um, just a quick, yeah. quick follow-up uh, with that, Polo. So there's the economic um, side of that, but there's also, uh, if you like, the, um, the softer values side of it, um, you know, American leadership uh, in the mm -hmm. world, um, mm -hmm. uh, democracy and democratic values, um, if you like, the, the Western Hemisphere sort of, uh, uh, values system that um, you know they protected, uh, you know, with you know walk you know uh, walk softly and carry a big stick kind of uh, pro uh, approach to diplomacy um, throughout mm -hmm. sort of the nineties and um, early part of this century. Um, so, do you think that there's like that is a factor at all in domestic politics? Do people realize that the the that the the, the plate tectonics have shifted? Um, given the reputational issues um, of, of, a, of a sort of American retreat from that stage? I don't think most Americans uh, really are aware of that. I think it's going to take some sort of uh, shock to the system to get people to wake up and understand what has uh, changed. And you, know, when you were talking, you reminded me of something that uh, – a former president said uh, many decades ago, Jimmy Carter, and that was, uh, it's interesting, he said that uh, uh, the best way for uh, the the rest of the world uh, to, uh, I'm getting the quote wrong, but he said, look, uh, we have to emulate uh, freedom and democracy and openness here at home if we expect the rest of the world to do it as well. I'm paraphrasing uh, we have to set the example for the rest of the world through our own actions and uh, this sort of thing. Uh, that's one concern is that when Trump, we were talking before about him sort of trashing the uh, legitimacy of elections and this kind of thing. When you have a president who does that, the rest of the world is watching and it's almost impossible for us to 
uh, lecture the rest of the world as uh, we've done in the past, rather arrogantly also, I, I would say, uh, to lecture the rest of the world on how they should behave and how they should conduct free and fair elections when we seem to have trouble doing these very things on our own. And this is some of the damage that has been done. And again, I'm not quite sure that most Americans really understand what uh, is happening. But I think the rest of the world looking at all of this, I think I think they certainly understand. Yeah. Uh, Paul, I, I, suppose, I just wanted to jump in there and, and carry on, I suppose, with the economic facet of, of what we've been discussing. And uh, you, you mentioned the impact of tariffs and the fact that, you know, for the most part, uh, those that are impacted most significantly by those tariffs don't understand the actual day-to-day and the real impact that they're having. Um, the, the question I have is, you know, the fact that on either coast, traditionally, either coast has been pretty much where most of the money has been spent in the US and the middle of the country is where most of the money has been made, you know, by agriculture, uh, production, industrial production and the like. Most of uh, Trump's base is situated in the middle of the country. So the question I have is, you know, how bad is it really in the places where it would matter in the scheme of things? And is it, is it bad enough now from the economic standpoint to, to shift uh, the balance of, of the voting public perhaps, you know, more to the, to the blue side of the equation? Uh, also, given the fact that Trump from day one has used the, the S&P as his measure of success, any time the index has rallied, he's pointed to it and said, look, look what I've done, look how good it is. And the fact that, you know, after this pandemic, it, we've, we've re- reverted not only to everything we've lost in terms of the S&P, but now back at all-time highs and, and going from strength to strength. So h- how do you see it in, in those places where, as I said, where it would actually really matter? Well, the, there, are a bunch of, uh, there are a bunch of parts to that, and I'll take the stock market part of it first. It's, 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 it's silly, obviously, for him to use the S&P as a gauge of his uh, presidency, uh, I think the studies show that uh, only about uh, half of Americans, I think about 52%, either own stocks outright or through a mutual fund or ETF or something like that. So uh, half of Americans don't. And of the half that do, even that is skewed rather disproportionately to the upper tier of uh, income earners. I think the stat is something like, uh, these aren't the exact numbers, but it's something like, uh, 85% of the stock market wealth is held by something like uh, 10% of the population, something like that. So in other words, it's, it's quite skewed. And yet he, he clings to this a data point as if, uh, you know, as if it's uh, helping everybody. Well, it's not helping everybody. Uh, his base is certainly not being helped by it. And you know, you're right when you, when you point out the uh, sort of the geographic uh, location of his base. It's in the Midwest and uh, much of the south, southern U.S. and that kind of thing. And uh, obviously, uh, the fact that the manufacturing jobs have been uh, hollowed out, uh, he seems to blame it on China and uh, their entrance into the uh, the World Trade Organization, which I think was in 2001 and this kind of thing. But the fact is, if you go back uh, further, uh, manufacturing jobs have been declining in America since I think about uh, 1950, right after World War II and right before uh, Korea. And the reasons for that 
are 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 many. I mean, it's not just that uh, we're much more productive now. We can make a a car with far fewer uh, uh, man hours and uh, that kind of uh, thing. Uh, we're simply much more uh, efficient. And I suppose when you factor in uh, new technologies like uh, you know robotics and that kind of thing, uh, this will only uh, continue. Uh, that has nothing to do with China. We're just a more productive, uh, efficient, and uh, we're using more tech, new technologies to get things done uh, faster and uh, cheaper. That's the way it should be. And yet Trump wants to turn back the clock to, say, 1945 and uh, you know, what does he want to do? Make a car in uh, with the with three times the man hour that uh, that we do now? Is that what really what he wants? Of course not. So that's uh, he just doesn't understand. I think some of these broader trends that are powering uh, our economy and the global economy. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I would here's something interesting. I think that uh, the that uh, Trump country, the Midwest and parts of the South that form his base. I, I, To me, it's just like one big emerging market that really needs a lot of <laughs> investment. Uh, you know, he talks about these opportunity zones where companies and entrepreneurs can come in with uh, capital and, uh, you know, kind of a startup uh, culture and everything. That all sounds uh, great and they, they should do it. But, uh, you know, you can't turn back the clock to 1945 or 1950 and that's what he seems to think uh, is is possible. And again, is based just like the tariffs. They they seem to think that this is possible. They seem to think these factory jobs are coming back. And well, they're not coming back. And I think people have to just uh, understand that. And yet, uh, yeah, he talks about this stuff as if uh, he can wave a magic wand and make things uh, make these things happen. Well, he can't. And yet, there are millions of people who uh, who, who believe him. I think there's there's an interesting thing that I would I think is an interesting way to think about it is the part of this is about the sort of um, sense in, in a globalized world that individual nations have sort of lost control of their own destiny um, that it's really you know so that you get this focus on what what can we do within our own borders um, that we can create and make um, rather than having to buy stuff, uh, you know, from overseas. It's very visibly and, and clearly from overseas. And I think that's part of certainly, um, this is sure. a global, it's a global thing, you know, it's certainly a, a concern in Australia. The The prime minister here um, last year raised, um, uh, you know, questions about, you know, what does, what, what is Australia's output going to be? Um, and I think, um, sorry, I hate I hate that phrase. I think, um, but um, you, you you do see it everywhere. Um, you see you, you, uh, you see it in a lot of Western countries where uh, you know the trade is as you referred to earlier, Paul. Uh, it's um, you know the the egg is already scrambled, right? It's 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 not getting unscrambled, and um, but but. What happens to voters inside that is like, well, hang on a second, my job is changing. There's this kind of pace of change; it's gone kind of gone beyond control. And along come these politicians who say we can control things again, uh, and it's a powerful political formula. Um, although how um, economically sustainable it is uh, uh, is another question, like you point out. 
Well, it's easy to talk about. Uh, it's easier for Trump to talk about the problems than it is to actually figure out what to do uh, about them. Uh, and uh, you're right. Either the the, uh, the sovereignty issue is uh, it's a legitimate issue. It plays to everything from his desire to have better uh, border security and uh, more restrictive immigration and this kind of thing. He wants to bring uh, supply chains. Uh, home. Uh, these are all uh, valid uh, arguments. I don't think that. Uh, again, even though I've said I'm not, I'm not a, a Trump man. Uh, I do. I, I certainly agree that every nation has the right, if not the obligation, to control its borders and uh, better uh, control who can come in and uh, come in for how long and that kind of thing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. The, uh, and I think that that's a global issue. I think there are certainly those issues in uh, Australia and England and Germany and uh, all over the place. So I think Trump, obviously, I will say that uh, he tapped into some of these forces, I think, uh, rather uh, rather brilliantly in his uh, crude and populist way. But uh, he was able to do it uh, quite effectively in 2016. And those forces obviously have uh, not gone away. In some instances, they've uh, they've gained strength since then, and he continues to uh, pound on these themes. I think rather uh, effectively. But you're right; it's a global issue, and the issue of the supply chains too. Uh, it's interesting that uh, there are, in fact, an increasing number of American corporations who are saying, "Well, maybe we should." Uh, get out of China, stop uh, manufacturing uh, component uh, parts, and uh, we don't need to make a widgets uh, there. Uh, let's start doing that at uh, home, or at least in you know, Mexico or something where it's easier to control and uh, shorter uh, you know, transit times and that, uh, that kind of thing. Of course, uh, all that, uh, the question with all of that is uh, what would be the the you know the the ultimate cost of an end good to a consumer, of course, uh, if you change these supply lines, the cost of all this uh, disruption and so forth. I don't know, but uh, that's the, sort of an ongoing ongoing debate now. The, uh, right? the okay, the, the 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 one last blunt, and I'll, and I'll ask this to you as an American <laughs> and someone who is there, and then we're going to talk about rose gardens and, and first ladies and and uh, and your book. Uh, so this is the. The very, the very easy question. In the 1980, they only had one presidential debate between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter going for a second term. Ronald Reagan challenging for it. And he, and he asked the question, and that's the famous question, uh, And as his sort of closing address, do you think that you are better off now than four years ago? And and do you think that if the average American was asked this question and asked themselves this question, how, how would they answer this question, Paul? Well, if you answer it on metrics like uh, the unemployment rate, the answer is certainly uh, no. If you answer it on in terms of uh, how much money you have left over uh, after you're done paying your expenses and so forth, uh, I think the answer is uh, probably uh, no. And I think from the standpoint of we can broaden that question to say is are you more uh, do you feel better about America's role in the world now than you did four years ago? Do you think we're safer as a country now than we were four years ago? There are all kinds of ways to 
ask and answer that question. Um, I don't think we're safer than we were four years ago. I think we're less secure. I think we're more uh, vulnerable. I think there's a greater uncertainty about the future than ever before. We, we even worry about sending our children to school now, which was not an issue four years ago. So I think for most people, if they really sat down to consider these questions, I think for most, the answer would be no. And in fact, that's what the polling seems to uh, indicate. But of course, for President Trump and his base, there's always another way of spinning this. And it's always the, the Democrats' fault or it's China's fault. It's the China virus, as he likes to call it. Uh, he seems to think that we're in much better shape than four years ago. Uh, most uh, polling suggests uh, otherwise. Well, uh I've got another option for you. I can't, I can't, I can't do the Gibbs jump switch, unfortunately, Paul, but I'm going to do, I'll do my best effort. Now, let's talk about Rose Gardens. Let's talk about First Ladies. Uh, try, and, try and pick it back up off that. Uh, now, uh, Melania Trump, I, I actually think that has there ever been in history a more, a more sort of surprised First Lady to actually have the job of, of President's wife in in history. I'd be keen to know if there was anyone who didn't really ever expect to marry a guy and then wind up as being the first lady. She just redid the the Rose Garden, uh, and uh, it's it's received some pretty ordinary reviews. Some of those trees were planted by Jackie Hus uh, uh, in in her original renovations back in the early sixties, and mm-hmm. she's she's copying a bit of flack for it. Do you think it's overdone? What would Jackie think? Well, these comparisons between Melania Trump, I have a book out about Jacqueline Kennedy, as you mentioned. I think these comparisons are kind of uh, silly. Uh, look, she's uh, she's obviously a very attractive uh, woman. When you talk to her, she's uh, quite friendly and uh, this and that. But uh, these comparisons with Jacqueline Kennedy, I think, are just I could talk about that for for hours, but uh, they're they're simply they're simply not uh, valid. And uh, yes, I don't think uh, anyone was as surprised as she was that uh, they won. And uh, you remember that she spent uh, she was not exactly eager to move into the White House. She spent a couple of months living at uh, Trump Tower in New York. Uh, they said it was because a bear and their son was still in school that's a legitimate uh, argument but uh, i don't think uh, my my read on her and just talking to people who are close to her and of course you've seen videos of her uh, around her husband i i don't think i don't think that's a particularly uh, happy uh, marriage i think i mean they they do sleep in separate uh, bedrooms a lot of presidents and first uh, first ladies uh, have by the way that's not new it's not the happiest of marriage i think it's a kind of a marriage of convenience at uh, this point and uh, you know I'll leave it at that but the comparisons with the Jacqueline uh, Kennedy I think are just uh, I mean come on <laughs> it's ridiculous so uh, run us through run us through your book Paul if uh, if that's okay because I, I I'm keen to read it myself and uh, I'm, I, I my wife and I if, if I give you some background on this my wife and I when we first started dating we we picked up every single book that we could get on the Kennedys and actually their their, their personal life and and himself as as the young man who came up in the first you know the first was it the first child that was born in the white house so sort of in 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 a presidential time and it uh just yeah that that glow in that camelot that early 60s era and and everything that we just loved and we did and and that's sort of what brought us together and so that's why i'm keen to, to to pick up this book 
now that we've been married for 14 years and uh, and uh, g'day to Michelle if she's listening and I know that she won't be um, but uh, yes yeah, so I'm just keen to, I'm just keen to hear the details I'm just keen to hear the details on this book mate if uh, if you could just give us a quick run through well the quick run through is that uh, there are obviously a ton of books on the Kennedys as you say and uh, books on Jackie tend to look at her in the White House or her in you know later years working in the publishing industry and that kind of thing. I have a much narrower uh, focus. It's the sort of the five years between her two marriages. President Kennedy obviously is assassinated. Five years later, she marries Aristotle Onassis. So, so how did she? How did she transform from first lady to Jackie O? That's the story. It's just fascinating, and that's what I focused on. I mean, she's devastated, absolutely devastated by. The assassination. She she thought about uh, killing herself. That's how bad it was for her. She didn't because of her children, and uh, so she recovered. But she never really got over it. There's a Kennedy story in um, in our family. Uh, well, being Irish, you know, the the uh, <laughs> Irish people are very, very you know, every American president now we try to find an Irish link, and um, yep. you know, uh, well, Clinton obviously had one, but. Um, there is also a, I think, dated an Irish guy. Um, a couple of generations back. There's a uh, an Irish connection to Barack Obama's family somewhere. And well, of course, Obama used to joke that his name was Obama. Obama. <laughs> they've got, they've right. named a shopping plaza after him. I think it's a. Yeah, yeah I, I can't remember. There's a little village anywhere where where the, you know the the presidential motorcade arrived, and you know he had a pint of Guinness, and there are these photos of um, Barack Obama, like smashing a pint of Guinness in this tiny pub. It's just fantastic. But Kennedy was obviously the person who kind of started all of that. And um, my little boy uh, is Edward, uh, and he's named after Ted Kennedy because <laughs> after after he was born, uh, we still hadn't decided on a name. Uh, and so uh, in the hours after he was born, we were sort of negotiating over WhatsApp on, you know, what we were going to call the child. As you do. Um, and uh, one day he'll bust out this podcast. I better make sure he grows up knowing the story. But um, uh, so uh, uh, we went through some Irish names. My wife rejected them all. Um, uh, so like Sean's and Columns and that kind of thing. So no to all of those. So I went to John Bono. F. So oh. she said, no. Uh, so well, uh, Robert for Bobby. No, no. What about Edward for Teddy? She said, okay. And deal. That's how he got his name. That was uh, it. Yeah. It was Bono on that list at all? Is it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any other Irish names, anyone? <laughs> um, well, That's cracking. Great story. Yeah. I like that. That's so, good. Um, good. But uh, um, I have one last question for you, Paul. Favorite president? Oh, good. Oh, I'd say probably uh, Harry Truman. Why? Well, Truman was just a. Uh, he was just a regular American, just a, a good, decent, humble guy who uh, worked his way up. And even in the White House, when uh, the, the burdens of the job and everything, he never really lost sight of who he was. He was he worked hard and he was just a scrupulously uh, honest and he was always willing to. Uh, he always took the blame when things went wrong, but uh, eagerly gave credit to others when 
things went right. I think those are terrific uh, values. I think they're values that are missing today. So when you go back and look at uh, people like him, I think, wow, that is what uh, we need. Just a good, honest, hardworking guy, humble, uh, gives credit to others, takes the blame when things go wrong. If he had that famous sign on his desk, of course, that said, the buck stops here. The buck stops That's here. wonderful. Yeah, and- oh, Trump, of course, Trump, of course, says, well, I don't take responsibility for, for anything. So actually said that's, it. Actually, yeah. He that's actually the, said it. He actually said it. I, I, so, I couldn't believe it. And, and Truman, with, with my, Truman is my favorite as well, Paul, so that's, uh, that's interesting. And, and I think I'm going to get this wrong, but he actually didn't really want the nomination for a second term. They sort of had to drag him up, um, and that's, that, I think, is, 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 is a credit to him and, and to that, that it was just like that they had to had – to, had, had to sort of push him up to, turn, to go and take that second term. Am I wrong on that one? If I completely botched it? There's a well, he, well, he was only elected once. He was elected in the 19... He, he, uh, he took over when uh, Roosevelt died and was elected in 1948. It was, a, it was a shocker of an election, so almost like a 2016 kind of thing. Nobody thought he had a chance. And yet, he yeah. pulled, and yet he pulled it out uh, in 1952 he declined to run again. Uh, the economy was troubled and he was up to his neck in the Korean War and this and that. And he decided, uh, oh, I've had enough. And he, you know, and he uh, retired. But uh, he retired with the honor and dignity. And uh, he showed others, well, this is the way to do it. And uh, I think that's something that's certainly been lost on our current crop of politicians. And uh, I'm talking about more people than uh, Trump here, by the way. I think uh, I think more humility, uh, less uh, you know, less uh, uh, passing of the buck. Uh, I think that's what we need, and uh, you know, that's how you make America great. By the way, is having those kinds of uh, values, not people who refuse to take responsibility when things go wrong. That's not how you do it. Uh, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation, uh, Paul Brandis, uh, who, who runs at West Wing Report. Um, thanks so much for joining us on the VIP show. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Uh, we're on Twitter. It's at the underscore BIP underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search the BIP show. We're all there individually as well at Colgo at James Whelan 42. Thank you very much, Paul. Paul, uh, over in Washington, thank you so much. Uh, a huge fan, and, and I'm glad that we finally managed to get this together. Yeah, it's great. And at Ken Vexler in Amsterdam, thanks very much. Uh, great to get you on the line for that one. Yeah, really appreciate it. And thank you, Paul. Uh, please do come back urgently and soon. There is so much more that we need to chat about. When they when they open the borders, uh, yeah. So, um, so Someday. Yeah, when, when was the last time you – I haven't been on an airplane in like six months. Crazy. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't yeah. shook hands with someone for six months. It's one yeah. step at a time. Yeah. yeah. Much forever. Yeah, it's an elbow bump now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's it's one, one of the things about, like, at least you can go to eventually, you know, overland. I mean, you could go to Canada or, you know, you walk to Alaska. You know, we're stuck in Australia. It's a giant island <laughs> with all these dangerous animals. All the things that are So, yeah. 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 Um, but look, uh, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everyone. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly, Rick Salter, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.